Okay. Hopefully I don't sneeze while we do this. So, we have, this is uh, one of our first podcasts. It was, uh, I think, part of this early stage in this experiment that we're, uh, we're working on. Um, I think it's something that we want to be part of an ongoing series, not just uh, this one singular episode, but to actually have uh, more guests who are involved in the education system coming on and talking about their experience, um, their opinions, maybe what they think can be improved, and uh, hopefully throughout this process we can continue to stoke a conversation around that. I think that um, the two guests that are going to be coming on, both Pierre Dion from St. Thomas High School and Ronnie DiCastro from Westmount Elementary School, even though their experiences differ in terms of Pierre being much more tenured and seasoned as a teacher and Ronnie DiCastro being 10 years in, I think that a great synergy can be formed amongst the two of them that is sort of like an adequate and healthy precursor for this series to go on and to have further discussions. Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, I think this is obviously an issue that as young people being in school, being, I mean, we're both in university, so it's not like we're in high school or, or elementary school, obviously. Um, but that it's, it's, it's a topic that is important to us because in a way I think a lot of people feel as if the education system is lacking or it's lacking in its ability to uh, invoke in people a kind of direction. Uh, I would say this is really the case, especially for the humanities, um, that, you know, there's this, this sense of, or feeling of, of being lost. Um, and I think, I think when we first discussed having this podcast, that part of it was to actually look at, well, what's the experience you know, in high school and in elementary school for professors. And, you know, even hopefully over time having more people on the podcast that can actually discuss what their experiences were in high school um, because those are very formative years. Uh, you know, high school and elementary school, those are years that really are the, are the foundation stones of a person and their characteristics leading into this stage in life where you're in university. Um, so I don't, I don't know if I have anything else to say really about the... No, well, I think that you really touched upon how due to the fact that young people are really feeling lost and, and sort of they don't have a clear trajectory for their lives and where they're heading, um, to have teachers within the high school and elementary school domains certainly for us gives us clarity a bit on our own reflections. And hopefully with our viewers listening, that same sort of clarity could be evoked to them. So it's more of like this reciprocal dynamic that is aimed for. Yeah, and I think on that note, we're going to start the podcast, but I'll just kind of reiterate that I think the, the key to this is, is having in the dialogue. So people listening to the podcast, you know, feel free to, to leave comments, uh, to send us messages with your, with your views, with your opinions. If, you, if there's something that you want us to maybe even bring up in a further podcast, uh, that would be great. So uh, we, we hope you all enjoy. Good. Well, I think that um, due to all of us having a connection to the education system, um, that's sort of the nucleus for this discussion. And I've been sort of harping on this idea for a topic for our dialogue. And I think that a good opening question, so a segue into this very in-depth conversation, 
start off, I was wondering if you both could share a biographical trajectory, whether it be objectively or subjectively, that led you in the pursuit of a teaching profession. Alright, I'll let you go first. Alright. Um, okay, so it goes way, way back. I, uh, as I said earlier, I grew up in the 60s. And uh, it was a strange time to go to school. Um, teachers were really underqualified. Um, they were either uh, nuns, ex-nuns, or about 20 years old. This was in Montreal? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there was a lot of, um, they used a lot of violence. There was a lot of physical violence. Um, my grade two teacher, I'm left-handed, my grade two teacher yeah. took offense to that. She used to tie my hand behind my back. And they forced me to write with my right hand, which gave me massive headaches, right? And to this day, my handwriting is like atrocious. And um, like I said, there was just violence was common. A grade five teacher threw me down a flight of stairs for trying to find a practical joke. Um, and I remember thinking, like, if I was a teacher, I would not beat people up. If I was a teacher, I would do cool things. If I was a teacher, I would use television. Yeah. I would use media. I, I learned from my own experience that I learned a hell of a lot from watching movies and watching TV. Uh, sometimes I think more than I learned in, in school. And I remember thinking, I would, I would do this. And I had a couple of really innovative teachers. I was in this project called Children's World in 1969, and it was going to be a new school, and it was the, the whole concept at this time, there was this trend towards uh, bringing down the walls, yeah. no more classrooms, open classrooms, right? Uh, mixed grouping age-wise, and project-based learning. It was really, really cool. And even the report cards, there was no more ABCs. It was uh, CSM, commendable, satisfactory, or minimal. And it had to do with your effort rather than your actual performance. And so these teachers were wonderful. They exposed us. They had us listening to classical music. They had us listening to Jesus Christ Superstar, which at that time was so cool. Yeah. Um, and they were just really, really, actually quite brilliant teachers. And I really appreciated them. I, I, I respected them. And then I kind of forgot about it. Although I remember as a child playing teacher and oftentimes mimicking the, the bad behavior that they were doing. And I totally forgot about it until in my early 20s, I was working as a, as, as a fitness instructor at the Y, at the Westmount Y. And people kept on saying, you make a good teacher, you make a good teacher. And I thought, no. Um, but eventually I went Why in that direction. I just, I never thought of it. It wasn't like my life, you know, ambition was to be a teacher or, or a fireman or anything. I just never had that kind of, you know, mindset. Um, so I kind of stumbled into teaching rather than, you know, seeking it out as a profession. Wow. What about you, Ryan? Um, well, for me too, it was, it's not one of those things that I always knew I wanted to do. Um, I'm, I'm of Asian descent, and uh, you're basically told what, what to think, you know, and so you don't really think for yourselves as much. And then um, I reached a point in my life where it was time for me to make a decision by myself, and I wasn't really ready for that. I never did, I didn't really have foresight, I guess. And then um, it was time for me to make my decision. I chose accounting, because I'm Asian, I'm good with numbers. <laughs> I can say that right on this podcast. You can say whatever the hell you want. 
<laughs> I mean, the only, the only problem here is that you're, you're, you're fueling, you're fueling questions that I, I know that Mario wants to say on topic, but I'm just like, oh, okay, well, I have a question now. <laughs> but go on, go on. So anyways, and I realized it wasn't for me. Like, just because you're good at something doesn't mean that it's meant for you. That's not where my heart was. Yeah. And um, when I realized that accounting wasn't for me, all of a sudden I was lost. I was really, really lost. And I was in limbo. It was a horrible feeling. And then I had to do some soul searching. And um, I started thinking back, you know, of like all these past experiences. What made me happy? And I thought of my, my time as a day camp counselor. I thought of this... A series of commercials that was released in the 1980s called The More You Know. Wow. You know, about, you know, just uh, the impact of a t-shirt. Maybe you remember those commercials. I remember all these different things started to come to me. And, um, and then I remember my favorite novel from high school, The Catcher in the Rye. Yeah. And the ending of the story is... That is effective. Yeah, yeah before he goes, you know, to, mm-hmm. to the, I guess, the, the asylum. <laughs> He says, I want to save kids. I want to be that guy who saves kids from falling off the cliff. Mm-hmm. And uh, it really spoke to me at the time. I completely forgot about it. You know? And then um, that's when it came to me, like an epiphany. I want to be a teacher. Wow. You know? So in the beginning, my career was really funny because that was all heart, no technique. <laughs> you know? Just like mistake after mistake after mistake. It was chaos in the class. But, but my heart, but I, I always gave it my all. And, I knew this is what I was meant to do, and it just it took me a while to figure things out. And I'm, I'm really glad I made this decision. I'm pretty sure, you know, that this is what my skill set. This is my skill set. This is what best suits my skill set. Wow. And you've been teaching for how long? Sixteen years now. Yeah, I was gonna say like early two thousands. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So there you go. And then I switched from accountancy to uh, child studies, and from child studies to. Um, elementary education in the guild. Wow, that's my story. <laughs> <laughs> I find it interesting though that like even after six years, you kind of, or at least the way that you said it, it's like you know you think, but it almost feels like maybe somewhere in the back of your mind it's like, is that a hundred percent? Yeah, mm-hmm. and maybe there's like that aspect of growing in being a teacher too, which is something that I've I've definitely recognized with most, not all teachers, but teachers who've had a profound effect on me that they are still learning, which is like a big big part of. I think being able to teach, right, is the, is the ability to continue learning. Absolutely. We, we, we can continue. Yeah, um, but I mean, that sort of continuous process, I mean, you can sort of, like you said, you can recognize it in specific individuals. But I was just wondering, because you've pursued this profession, um, in your life of all the teachers you've ever had, in every class you've ever taken, how many had a singular influence on whom and what you became? Well, three. Uh, Mr. Bruce, who was my first male teacher, who um, was grade five teacher, and he was so cool. He seemed to be so exotic because he was from Barbados, and I think he had cataracts because he always wore sunglasses, but he could see well enough to get by. And he played the guitar, and he was also involved in the glee club, mm-hmm. and uh, so he got me involved in that, and that meant churches and, and concerts, and he was just a wonderful guy. He would do really cool things, like so outside the box. Like I remember one day we were talking about time, and he was teaching the concept of time, and he made us watch the clock. It was an analog clock, and watch the clock for one minute to just get that sense, and to watch the the minute hand moves ever so slightly as the second hand went around and that was really cool and he was just he was he was just really full of stories he had these wonderful stories and he just picked from everywhere 
you didn't seem to have any sort of solid curriculum now that I look back at it. Mm -hmm. But he was just a wonderful person and kind of like what you're saying, he just gave it all his heart. And you could feel it, you could sense it, and, and for that reason you loved him, right? Um, then in my eighth grade English teacher, Mrs. Loretis, uh, she saw that I was a, a bit of, um, you know, uh, I was a bit advanced for the other students, and so she started giving me readings uh, at the CJEP level. Wow. She challenged me. Yeah, and, and that's so, lacking today. Like, there's yeah, never yeah. teachers taking that initiative or right. seeing that it's there, the opportunity. That's it. And, and so she gave me the CJEP level look, and, and then we'd go over at lunchtime once a week, we'd go over the questions I had, and, and um, so that was really awesome. She was just really there for me and, and took that time. And then in grade nine, Mr. Mazumdar was such a character, um, and he was uh, uh, from India. He has these wonderful stories about growing up in India and just really funny stories. And, and so it was actually more of a storyteller, you know, mm -hmm. that made it. But then I remember he would do things like, he spent six weeks teaching his grammar just like cold, you know. Uh, but he threw in enough jokes to make you go through it. And the funny thing is, I ran into him when I was doing my master's, and he was doing his master's, and uh, gave uh, Joshua, my son, a, a, a gift when he was born. Wow. He gave him a gift, which was really cool. And then I found him again, yet again, that he's teaching karate at the, um, <laughs> the NDG oh, one. He's got to be in his like, late 60s. Wow. But he just looks like, he's always looked young, and he still looks Jeez. young. And, and he's, yeah, like a third dan in karate, and he's teaching karate. So, like, it's just beyond teaching. I mean, he retired, like, decades ago, right? But he just keeps teaching. Now yeah. he's teaching karate, which is so cool. Mm -hmm. So going back to your statement about, you know, continually learning, that's what he's doing. Mm -hmm. Really cool. What about you, Ronnie? Um, it's really funny, but I guess, because um, there's nobody that really, really, really sticks out to that extent. I've had some good teachers. But to say that they had like this impactful, you know, I guess um, this big impact on me and my life as a, the development of me as a person, as a teacher, I wouldn't go to that extent. Mm -hmm. um, but I, tons of good teachers, like there's like Françoise Robitaille, she was my elementary school teacher. I had her three times. You know, some they, they move teachers levels. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, just, I don't know, she picked me. But I always liked the fact that I was in her class. I always thought that I was lucky I was in her class three times. Um, at McGill, there was Howard Riggs. I liked him a lot. He taught teaching math. So that was cool. Um, there was Susan Regan. She teaches here. She taught me in philosophy of education. I liked her a lot too. And um, funny, but like, I like uh, pop culture teachers a lot. Oh, why is that? I like Co Coach Carter a lot. <laughs> I like him a lot. He, he's a tough love kind of guy. Oh, it's a, um, a film character. Okay, okay, from the basketball movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Tough love. <laughs> and I like also um, uh, Mr. Schneebly from School of Rock. Okay. Oh, Jack Black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. um, so, I mean, it's not your typical answer, but. Um, I think when I became a teacher, I didn't really know who I was. And then like, you know, I, I grew into that person over time. Mm -hmm. And um, you kind of just, I think the kids helped me become who I am and my wife helped me became, become who I am. And so I guess in a way, now that we're talking about this, I never really came to you, but like maybe they're kind of my, 
mm. teachers. They filled that sort of void. They helped me figure out who I was as a person, you know, my wife and my students, I think. You know, and I think this is something that <clears throat> I, and I'm being, I'm, it's, this is so hard because I can, I tend to derail. Oh, sorry, can you just add? <laughs> yeah, add my, um, and I can't forget, of course, my mother and father. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. I have to mention that. Sorry, go on. No, and I think it's great that you mentioned that because so since we started this conversation, you, you mentioned you know that, that you're of Asian background and that you know, things are taught to you, and I think that just looking at the two of you now and how you're telling your stories, there is something interesting that even though there's a difference, you just brought up movies. You brought up movies, right? As being this element into in learning. So there's something in a way even in, in my life, uh, as somebody who's still in the early stages of learning, that it, it's not been school necessarily or teachers in general that have taught me anything. It's specific individuals, maybe maybe not even movies, but like one scene in a movie that just like had a profound effect. Um, even sometimes like just small actions you see people do on a daily basis. Like some, like, you know, there's, there's some days where I guess when I feel the most pessimistic about humanity are the days that I tend to try to act the best. Um, but I wonder too, in a, in a sense, and this is, I guess, where my thought has been going is like, how much has your backgrounds before, you know, like your, your early, early education, your parenting essentially in a sense. And that's why I'm really happy you brought up your parents. Um, how maybe that affected Maybe not just your decision to become a te to become a teacher, but to teach just in general, to, to teach other people. That's a thought that, that I guess has been uh, going through my mind as we've been having this conversation. Well, I also I find it interesting that you sort of see um, certain intricacies that an individual may encounter in certain moments, and the amalgamation of those intricacies yeah. sort of replace sort of like this sort of um, teaching vehicle, and so it kind of reminds me of this question as to why usually when I ask this question to other teachers, they probably name out five, four, if you're lucky, three teachers that have had that profound influence. So why is it so few and so far between, you know what I mean? Like it's such mm -hmm. a small number instead of it always being like consistent, like wow, it should be much more of a harder sort of like deciphering to come to that sort of number, you know what I mean? Yeah, but it's probably like partially having to do with personality, psychology, interaction you have, uh, some sort of spark, some sort of chemistry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, or you just click, right? And like I remember Philip Ramy did his master's on this whole thing about um, the student's um, sort of worldview, and there's a correlation between their world, them having a very similar worldview to their teachers, but they, but he kind of cut through it that you can't bullshit them. Mm -hmm. Like, if, if that connection isn't real, the teachers pick up on that really fast. So it's not, it's not, it's not, oh yeah, he likes that, so I'm gonna pretend I like that. It's more like, there just seems to be a genuine uh, meeting of minds, and, and so that person you just fit, so you'll allow yourself, so I extrapolate on his thesis, but you allow yourself to be guided by that person, that person, uh, there's some sort of connection, you have a similar worldview, and it just kind of slides together, and you really want that uh, connection to, to relate to that person. So maybe that's why there's so few, because yeah. it's just like a serious combination of, you know, the stars and alignment and, and the psychology and the worldviews and, and other variables, you know, the size of the class, how many kids are in the class, where you're sitting in the class. 
Yeah, I, I, I know. I just think that because there's a sort of pervading theme that the school system lacks this dynamism, right? And it sort of feeds you this intrinsic morbidity in terms of being creative and being inquisitive and whatnot, that those same individuals who have felt that decay inside of themselves, they sort of make this vicious cycle and then they become teachers and they're feeding that sort of yeah. same morbidity and same sort of vicious cycle. Yeah. And so... But how, how much is that true in the sense that... Um, well, you can... But I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll clarify that like how how many teachers do you think there actually are that are like that hate kids or hate teaching or or I'm sure there are some I don't I don't doubt that there are some but like to say like the the right this internal decay. Mm-hmm. But I can I can speak to that because yeah. I remember actually in in high school teachers declaring on usually the first day of class that they didn't want to be teaching what they were teaching. Because mm-hmm. in the 60s, you had the baby boom, so you had all these teachers, and like I said, they were totally underqualified, they were quite young, and just hostility, anger towards the system. And, you know, it's really hard to buy into a class where the teacher tells you, I don't want to be teaching this class. Yeah. You know, I'd rather be doing this. Right? Yeah, teachers shouldn't be saying Yeah, I know, <laughs> They right? should keep that to themselves yeah. and then just, you know... Um, say maybe it's like maybe not their specialty but you don't say I hate doing this Um, but yeah like I think that's just part of the way the system goes you know because new graduates are the last to pick from all the jobs that are offered they get the jobs that nobody else wants and sometimes they they have to teach a job they're not very good at you know maybe they have to teach I don't know let's say you know nothing about biology but you have to teach biology yeah. Or your specialty is grade five, but they, they, they say you gotta teach kindergarten. Yeah. Because it's all that's left and you have to pay the bills. So maybe that's where the mobility comes from. So I, many people having to do stuff they don't want to do. Well, you know, I think that and you know, maybe maybe I'm naive when it comes to this, but you know, when I was when I was a counselor at least, um, I love being with the eleven year old boys because that's just that's what I got, you know. Yeah. But when I was placed with the, the young ones, the three year olds I mean, at first it was something I was like, oh, I don't really want to be here, whatever, but it's, it's kids, babies, maybe it's not the best example, so you kind of just start to love them really quick. Um, but I guess this, this idea that, you know, if you're put in a position where you don't really know enough or you don't feel like you're qualified, uh, maybe where like this resentment or this like anger comes from is the fact that there's that individual person isn't taking it as an opportunity. Or at least that's, that's how, how I would look at it. Because again, like I've, you know, to the back to the, the idea that there's three or four people who have ever had an influence on my life is because whether or not they're experts in the fields they were in, they took that field and they took it with stride. You know, they made it. You know, my, my grade 11 math teacher, um, I only found out when I graduated that math wasn't what he wanted to teach, but he made that class so fun and I hated math. I hated math. And he made that, he made math, you know, fun for me for my last year. He didn't want to be there, but he just, like he said, you know, he, didn't, he put on a, a face in a way, and, you know, sometimes we put on faces for, for a while. The thing is, is that with teaching, maybe you guys, when uh, you did your research, you found this out, but that five-year mark mm-hmm. is, is so, so, it's such a deal, it's such a make-or-break type of moment. So within the first five years, 50% of teachers will quit, yeah. right? So you will decide if it's meant for you within that five-year mark. So, um, in the beginning, when, when you're teaching something that you don't want to teach, 
then you don't have that, you, know, you, don't, you don't have that passion, then of course you'll have negative feelings and it might be transferred onto the students. But once you pass that mark, then you, you become almost a master of flexibility. That's like what your teachers are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But teachers, that, that's what they do. You know, let's say we're under-resourced, mm. where it's very difficult working conditions. We are like Gumby, we can just figure it out, you know, um, with in a small class, limited furniture, no bookcases, difficult everything, lack of everything, we figure it out somehow. And so once you get that five, past that five year mark, we make the impossible possible. Honestly, sometimes we, we lose a few years from our life mm -hmm. doing it, you know, trying to figure it out because it's super stressful, but we do figure it out. Wow. Yeah. That's like Maya Angelou's thing, like, change what you can, what you can't change, change your attitude. Right? Yeah. And that's what you do as a teacher, right? You go, okay, so I don't want to teach math, but I have to teach math, so okay, I'm going to enjoy teaching math. Let's try to make this enjoyable. Well, we kind of feed And when I taught you, yeah. sorry, yeah. I'm just I'm going to let you, because you have so sorry for doing this, but um, when I taught French, I taught you French. Yeah. I did not study to become a French teacher, but I made the most of it at the time. You know, we play like educational games every so often. And I just, I try to make French fun for the kids. That was by far the best French class. <laughs> because like you said, there was that dynamism, but also I was with those kids for like three years consecutively. And I could see their interests, especially when it came to French stuff, it was sort of decaying. It was decreasing as time went on. And then all of a sudden, this sort of like burst of energy just entered into that same setting. And it was sort of like a rejuvenation effect that was contagious. And we had games, we had presentations, everybody was vocalizing, getting out of their bubble, their shell. And it was the last year before everybody was graduating, moving on, going through that rite of passage, going into high school. And that's pretty much one of the pivotal moments, one of the pivotal years where you need that sort of resurgence. And so, yeah, I just remember that, yeah, I felt really uh, compelled to be a part of that sort of dynamic. And that, that Thank you. I had no idea that's how the kids felt. Yeah, that's I really mean, kind of, and, really, and that's really nice to hear that all these years later. I know, it's, it's, it's 10 years. <laughs> I did not know this. <laughs> yes, it's, it's 10 years, and um, yeah, I, I just remember that, that people were sort of, there was a vitality that was sort of injected into them. I have a question. Um, all of your, in all of years of experience, have you noticed if there are less resources for teachers now than when you first started teaching? No, actually, I'd say it's the other way around. Okay. Um, yeah, I'd like to kind of perpetuate that myth, but it's not true. We have a lot more access to uh, technology than okay. we ever did. Um, you know, um, the brick and mortar hasn't changed. I mean, I'm literally in this building that was built in 1959 and it hasn't changed since a couple of little paint, paint jobs, you know. But they did wire, and it's funny, it almost reminds me of like, you know, that um, Soviet-style architecture with the pipes and the, and the wires on the outside, you know, because it's all been retrofitted, right, for the, for the new technology. So no, I feel we're getting more resources, but it, unfortunately, like the rest of society, the technology has allowed them to make more demands on us. Like we had an issue recently uh, where I was admonished for not having read an email uh, on weekend 
that was informing that first thing Monday morning, there was a meeting of teachers in the library for some reason. And you don't meet those on weekends? I don't. Yeah, yeah. See, that's old school, though. Like, that's not a thing much anymore. Yeah, no, it's just like, no, I'm not doing that. And like, yeah. I did at first embrace it, and then I thought, wait a minute, they're just adding on to my day. Right. They're adding on to my tasks. And that really annoyed me. <laughs> and uh, I always remember, like, it speaks to the bigger societal situation. Uh, I remember seeing this woman, this was back in the early 2000s, and she was an early Blackberry user, right? And so I'm at a conference in Toronto, and I'm getting on the metro, and it's like 7, 10 in the morning, and this woman in a power suit is like, like vigorously typing away, you know? I'm going, damn, your job started like two hours before anybody else's. You're supposed to start from 9 to 5, and you're, there you are at 7 o'clock. Yeah. And that was like an epiphany, and I remember thinking, I'm not going to let that happen. And I remember when, you know, in the 80s, they used to talk about technology and this boom that was going to happen, and we're going to have so much free time. I remember my girlfriend at the time was in um, uh, Recreation Leisure at Concordia, and they were telling, oh yeah, everybody's going to have all this free time, we're going to need all these new, you know, people, because people are going to be really into fitness, and everybody's going to have time to exercise, and it's like, the reverse happened, right? I was reading something recently where, um, you have your fact checker check this, I can't remember where I read it, but that since the advent of emails and such, we've added 43 minutes to the, the average day of work, right? So it's really weird because it's like this double-edged sword, right? We have this technology and it's cool because you can tell kids, you know, like exploratory is so easy to do because you can just say, okay, go look this up and you give them, a, you know, some sort of guided question and they can do research and they can learn on their own, which is really cool. But then on the other hand, you know, uh, teachers and students, you know, are been, have been kind of like sucked into it. And I get emails from students asking questions or sending me in assignments at like 3 in the morning. I'm going, what the hell? What are you doing up at 3 in the morning? Well, they, they procrastinate on their, uh, on their assignment properly. No, but it's scary because it's just like they, they I don't know, maybe they procrastinate. No, sometimes sure. they're good students and they're not procrastinating. Sometimes it's a question, things not even due for another three days. Yeah. And they're sending you stuff at three in the morning. You're going, oh my god. I mean, I think there are definitely there definitely has been, uh, and I mean, in, in my studies at least, like I've I've run into several articles that talk about, um, you know, the way that we write articles now. Uh, it's a big problem. We tend to write very short articles. Skim, it's they call it skimming culture. Yeah. Um, so I, I definitely I think there are, there are negative effects. I just. Um, It seems to me, at least, that it's not like the technology that's necessarily the problem. It's the, it's the time, where or where the time is going, or how we're using the time. And so, like my view, I think this technology is actually a great thing. And I'm sure you, I'm sure everybody thinks the same way. It's just the way that we're looking at it is that we're looking at it through the lens of how people just act. And for the most part, most people don't act well or the way they should be, or you know, to the, like the most productive and optimal level. Um, and so I guess maybe what's what's been a failing is not the, the advancement in technology, but in teaching, yeah. uh, teaching tool or teaching techniques or how the day is organized. Um, this is something personally that I've thought about a lot, and maybe maybe what you experienced when you were a kid in the in the late sixties, the like classroom with no walls, except more of a having a maybe in a sense how we already designed with sageups, where you can pick your own schedule, have that kind of design. Uh, I actually met somebody last year who, this was in the early 2000s, his, his mother and a few other parents, they started the school, which ultimately failed. Um, 
for I'm sure many complicated reasons, but one of the one of the um, one of the designs I guess was that he could choose his schedule and he could build his schedule and he can even put in uh, empty space right if it was just like for self time. Now I don't know at like at what level at what level people are ready to start really having a serious conversation about how education uh, should change or can change or might even want to change. You want to say something? No, no, go on, go on. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm more getting on the point where I'm, where I'm just dabbling. Yeah. 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 Well, I don't know about you, but uh, that's something where, you know, like, we want to make change. We think, you know, if we get together, you know, and, you know, work as a unit, we can implement change, but... I mean, I've been at this business, you know, in this business for 16 years now. I don't know how long you've been doing this, but it's so hard to make a change. Yeah, it's so hard yeah. to make change. Oh, yeah. But then amongst the teachers, and that's what feels so cool sometimes, it's like almost subversive. Like you get together with some other teachers, and we have these things called interdisciplinary, so we work yeah. with other teachers. And we'll kind of subvert the system. And it's really funny when we do that, because we'll come up with a project, and then we're going to have a project in like three different classes, right? Uh, you know, math, English, and design, like I'm teaching design. And so the kids are working on the same thing in all three classes, but the teachers are giving them the information they need, like the design, I'm teaching them how to use the technology, what to do with yeah. it, right? In the math, they're showing them the math, and in the English, they're showing them how to write a paper, right? And the kids get confused because they go, this is the same project I'm doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, I can work on this, my math thing in here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you sure? Yeah, 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 yeah. And they're like, wow, this, like, this is really cool. It seems like a much more communal sort yeah. of Yeah, but it's, it's, you know, there are limitations to it, and, and it takes a lot of work. As you know, if you've ever done any interdisciplinary, it's a lot of coordination and a lot of release time, and we're lucky because we're an IB school. And this is, this is between high schools? Yeah, no, no, this is between teachers in a high school. Okay, in that, in that specific in that, school. But I, I have a, uh, question then that like you're saying there's coordination amongst like three different subjects mm -hmm. pretty much in one setting but since everybody's um, well respective teachers approach is different in each different mm -hmm. classroom setting um, so how do you you successfully empower one to critically engage and to critically think if that's sort of well it's funny because it's almost self-selecting because the only teachers that want to do this are more dedicated teachers more like kind of out there teachers, mm -hmm. like you're not going to get somebody who's real like you know fussy and by the book doing that at all. They're kind of a lot of teachers are very like kind of this is my domain and I close that door and this is my kingdom, and you know some to the point where it almost it, we, we kind of laugh at it. You know it's kind of seems like they they you know what was it one of the teachers were doing or we trying to figure out what his curriculum was and somebody said it's an enigma wrapped in a mystery wrapped in a, you know and uh, because. Nobody could tell what the hell this guy was doing, and he never talked to any of the other teachers, and you get that. But for these projects, it's teachers were really dedicated because you've got to be like, yeah, yeah, let's do this. This is cool because you know it's going to be more work. Mm -hmm. And like I said, we're lucky we have release time, but we end up having to do extra work and coordinating amongst ourselves. And we have both formal, you know, when we get release time, and informal, just talking, you know, in groups. And I'll go over to the math office and sit down and talk to them for a while. And, you know, I'll just tell them what they, like, I can do, and they'll get excited because they didn't even think of that, you know. Yeah. But those, like I said, it's like the teachers seek out other teachers, like-minded teachers, to do things like this because uh, 
those those teachers who wouldn't want to do it just won't be involved. And so you're talking about the system changing, right? So if somebody were to ask me, um, do you believe in the system of education? Do you think we can make changes, all this type of stuff? When I was thinking, because what's really fun about this podcast here, when when Martin <laughs> asked me to do this, I've never come more in my life, but Martin, um, it, it, it got me thinking, okay, well, because as a teacher, like life can sometimes feel like a blur, yeah. you know, because just life goes by so fast. As a teacher or just in general? Both, yeah, make that both. Yeah. And so there's all the, you know, you're just going, not going through the motions, but like life is like a whirlwind, yeah. right? And then, um, and as a teacher, for me anyways, my experience is it's, it's just filled with emotion, you know? And sometimes you feel almost like you're in survival mode. Mm-hmm. And you don't really get a chance to, you know, look deep inside. What am I feeling exactly? So what was fun about this podcast is it, got, it gave me a chance to make time to make me concrete my feelings. And so regarding um, changing the system and believing in the system, for me, it's I don't necessarily believe in the system, but I believe in teachers. Yeah. Mm. And that's what you're saying. You know, I think, right? It's yeah. not like making a systematic change, but just within certain teachers, within certain schools can make difference, you know, on a smaller scale yeah. and a smaller level. And that's what I believe in. I believe in quality teachers making a difference. And when they work together, like research shows, hopefully, fact check, that, um, that that's when you, you, you create the greatest impact for, for students. I mean, collaboration is like in, in anything. It's, that's, that's always right. the way you want to go. Um, I'm hesitant to say something because it's, it's something I've, wor- I've been working on for a few, for a few years. Um, but I'm going to say it anyway, so screw it. Oh. But I've, what you said about teachers, and so the sentiment that I've always had, and, and the way that I, growing up, when I would watch my teachers, and especially the teachers I got to know personally, and I would see that pressure, right, where you have these individuals who are probably, and maybe this is a hard statement to say, but are generally some of the best people in society, some of the better people in society are teachers. Um, but they're put in, a, I guess, in a situation, whether it's curriculum, whether it's maybe their own ego, whether it's, uh, you know, the administration level and the kind of pressures that I know administration put on teacher, teachers, um, that in an ideal world, I guess, what would be the best situations where, is where teachers would have like a, you know, like a Congress or something where, where it's more of a, you know, public kind of, uh, well, I guess you would design like a Republican type system, but for teaching, um, and that's that. That's something that at least the, the, I, I've thought about for the last few years, and I've and I've written a little bit about. Um, obviously, it's not fully fleshed out, but I've always thought of this idea that you know teachers work best with other teachers, and um, you know, I, can't, I don't know if I should say this either. <laughs> I'm just blowing, blowing it up, guys. But uh, so I have somebody close to me uh, who is actually in, in administration. I won't say where. Um, uh, in California. Uh, <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, and I mean, just like the amount of stress that that this person goes through, and that you know, other people that I know who who, who not only at Cordia but just everywhere, the, the amount of pressure that they feel between like what they're being told they have to fulfill and what they know 
and this is the base level, like what they know their students are capable of, what they know this specific individual student is capable ah, of. And you know, here. Yeah. Right, you have a teacher that says, I have this curriculum, but I know this kid that like, man, if he just had this extra time or if he could do this in a different way, he probably would succeed better. But, you know, like how you figure out, you know, some places you're, you're luckier in the sense of if you're teaching at a particular place, maybe, you know, the administration has more flexibility to work with the teachers. But at least in, I think, public school, that's where it's, it's really difficult. I, I have a, a, a pressing sort of question because you just sort of hinted at this equation between the curriculum being sort of opposite from the body of students that you have. And so with that sort of dichotomous um, relationship arising, I was wondering if at some point within your teaching careers, if you felt that you've overachieved because you've worked through that sort of contradiction or that your class sort of overachieved. You know what I mean? What do you mean by overachieving? Can you in terms of sort of going into a situation and assessing that, wow, this is going to take a lot of work for both yourself mm -hmm. and the individuals that you're working with, but you seem to maximize a certain level of potential that you didn't see sort of. Yeah, I, yeah, I feel that. Um, it's funny because, like, I was talking about the IB, the international, and it's a, a program, it's very vigorous. And um, I teach design, and design is it's really a kind of interesting course. It could be any kind of design, right? Like, I remember when I first got there, the guy who was teaching it used to make, like, tables and chairs. It was, like, shop, right? And then they got the computers, and they said, okay, we're going to do this. So I was teaching software, hardware, you know, programming. And um, it's, it's, I like the IB program in that way that it shows that the importance of the design cycle is more important than the product. As a matter of fact, it even says it in, in the in the um, in the marketing, the assessment, because the product itself is like one sixteenth of the mark, right? It's like minuscule, and kids were so and so. I found myself constantly like coming up and batting heads with kids who couldn't be bothered with all the rest of the stuff, couldn't be bothered with the research and the planning, and they just wanted to do the thing, and they figured if they just you know would would do this really great thing that it would just exempt them from the rest, and so there's a lot of resistance. But after eventually breaking through that, then suddenly they become much more um, efficient. And it's really interesting because some kids will never give in. And it's part of the system because of our system being, because the whole educational system, and it comes out in the architecture, right? It was built to train workers to work in factories. So you got them in rows and a bell goes off and it tells you when to start and it tells you when to finish. And, you're, and basically, you know, a big part of our job ends up being just basically discipline and you hand the satchel of facts and you just move on yeah and, and you yeah. just basically like like trying to teach them that the kind of the hidden curriculum is obedience right and it sort of crushes the the interest they may have had you know because you're so preoccupied with obedience and, and, and putting them in rows and like you know like i wanted desks i wanted tables instead of desks in my room that's three years you know and i had a co pretty cooperative uh, principal, you know, but he kept on, somehow I kept missing the day, and I'd say, you know, in September, hey, hey, what about those tables, you know, oh, yeah, 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 I've got that, yeah, yeah, remind me, you know, and then, like, I'd remind, okay, the spring guy, Dave, you know, oh, damn, I forgot, you know, sorry, try again in September, and I was like, and, but just, like, the physical space, like, arranging the space, um, you know, our school is a pentacon, right, like, if you know uh, Foucault, and he talks about that, right, the idea is that it's set up in like this, 
but kind of you like a prison. Yeah, so that you can watch, like in your classroom, you look across the, the courtyard and you can see another class. Wow. Like everybody can see everybody all the time. It's so creepy. And so how can you try to like take it in another direction when you physically are constrained by this 19th century mentality of thinking, you know, and the bells, you know, I tell them, you know, and we have this whole thing, right? Canadian anthem comes on, everybody stands up, you know, and every once in a while I'll just get annoyed and I'll say, you know what that is? That's indoctrination. Do you understand what's going on there? The, okay, let's go over the words here. Right? I stand on guard for thee, like, you know, and you're just sitting there blindly taking it in, you know. Um, the bell's going off, right? It goes back to the days. So I actually had jobs like that in factories where, like, a bell or whistle went off and you had to punch in before that. And if you didn't, if you were like one minute late, you got docked an hour. And then you couldn't even move until that, that lunch bell went. And then there was another bell when lunch was over. And there was another. And it's like, that's what the school's training them for, right? But we don't live in that society anymore. And so, and it damages people. And I think that's what happens. Some of the teachers that go into teaching are so damaged already, they can't get out of that mold. And they might have good ideas, but as soon as they get back into that physical space and the constraints and the rows and the bells, it, you can't help but start to fall back into those old. Have you ever experienced that? In terms of that loss? I have, I have a, actually a specific question. You used to teach which grades? Grade four. Grade four. That, teaching grade four now? Yeah. Last year I taught grade six, but I taught a bunch of stuff. So my, my question maybe along the lines is that like, what is like the contrast between like kindergarten and grade one? Just that, that one year difference. I can't speak from experience as a teacher, only as a father, because my son is now in grade one. Um, last year, he didn't have homework. Now, every night, he's expected, to, and I don't actually, I'm a fan of homework, if ever we talk about homework policy during this, sure. <laughs> this podcast. Um, but um, I know a lot of people don't like homework. I do. <laughs> anyway, you just gotta to do say, it now, you know, whatever. <laughs> but just to say that last year he didn't have homework, now he has homework every night. He's expected to, you know, do a bit of math, do a bit of reading, do a bit of writing. Um, what else is different? Last year there was a lot of playing in the classroom, but um, structured slash unstructured playing um, with stations and lots of freedom. Uh, this year, it's hard to really be sure of what's happening in the classroom because all the information I'm getting is through his mouth and you know his perception of the world is not always you know what's really going on. He has a pretty awesome car collection. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I, from my understanding, is they spend a lot of time sitting, listening, you know. Um, uh, yeah, I, I guess that's it. Well, I was gonna sort of ask if your role as a parent and as an educator, um, in what ways have these roles sort of intertwined or have they intertwined at all? They have, they have. Like being a dad definitely made me into a better teacher. Um, just because I finally understood like what it felt like on the other side for the parent, you know? so. When I'm talking to a kid, let's say a kid did something wrong, um, I'm not gonna say I'm perfect. I have made my my work my. I guess I've, I've used the, the wrong choice of words many times, but now I'm better. I'm definitely better because I try. Let's make this into a teaching opportunity. Mm -hmm. 
to teach them why that was wrong instead of just, I guess, losing my cool. Um, that helps. And also, um, if a kid is, let's say, sad or something, I, um, and they need a break, let's say they, they can't do the lesson, I'll definitely be more sympathetic. I'll just say, listen, um, if you're sad for whatever reason, if you don't want to talk about it, that's okay. Um, just take a short break. And then um, if you want to get back to work, um, that would be great. So, like, I guess it just made me a bit softer a little bit. But in a good way, not a bad way. How many kids do you have? Just out of your house? Just the one guy. And I'm sure you guys yeah, like No, well. I totally yeah. relate. Like, I, I totally understand what you're saying. Because I remember when I started, before I had kids, and it seemed almost adversarial with the parents. And they, you know, were being way too, you know, sympathetic to their kid. But once you have your own child, you realize. And, and yeah, it totally, like, mellows you. The one cut really, really changes your perspective mm -hmm. in a good way. Yeah. So, yeah, I totally agree. And is it ever um, sort of out of necessity? Like, you felt like that was needed, that sort of, like, soft sort of... Yeah, yeah, because like you said, sometimes some kids, for various reasons, and then I go back on one of my rants about technology, but I have a lot more kids who are really stressed out in high school. I don't know how, like, in grade school, but in high school. And I blame the technology because they don't get to be bored, right? They're always on. There's always somebody texting them or... or phoning them or, you know, and like, I see them at the bus stop, you know, they're just sitting there like texting away and like, or they got their butts in, they're listening to music, they're do, do, doing something all the time. And I got all these kids in my classes who are like super, super stressed. I'm like, I keep on finding myself having to say, no, it's cool, it's calm, calm, it's, it's okay, it's okay, calm down, you know? Rally the troops. They're just like, I have, I have to, I have to fight back a little bit mm -hmm. because we're talking about parenting. As I, I, I would be more inclined to say that it's bad parenting and not technology is the mm -hmm. reason why these kids fall into their phones. It could be. I think the two are kind of inextricably linked because, like, I, I see it all the time. Parents, you know, having their kids. Well, and that's bad. exactly it. I see that on the bus all the time yeah. with these little kids who are already. And you know, like I saw this post online the other day, and it was this picture of this woman reading a book and her child reading a book, and the caption was. This is on social media, so you know, put it in context. Uh, uh, but it was uh, the caption was like, "How to get your child to to, to read?" And, and he, she, I think, the response was something like, "Well, I didn't get him to read. Kids mimic, you know. So they, you know, kids are always watching parents. Like my, I, I never, I didn't have a cell phone until I was uh, taking the bus on my own, and it was like one of those like big Eric, yeah. Samsung Eric, Ericsons with like the big." Digits and I lost that within like a year, you know, my mom's like, well, that's it, you're not getting a cell phone for a while now. Um, and then after that, it, you know, I only discovered texting, I think, when I was like 16, 17, uh, or maybe, I mean, maybe 16, yeah. Um, but that was because, that, that's my, my parents, I guess, one, were partly also ignorant, we were like in the transition uh, generation. Yeah. Uh, but it was just also, it was not something that I guess they wanted as a priority. And even now, like, I see a huge difference between myself and my sisters, who are only two and a half years younger, where they're in it. They're, like, yeah. so into their technology. You know, and, and, and just in, on a personal sense, they're twins, so they're a little bit more to handle, and I can see that, like, when it comes to time, being one kid, I had a lot more of my parents' attention. And so maybe, like, I didn't fall into maybe these other things, and my distractions were, you know, a little bit less technologically uh, bound. So, anyways, that was my kind of yeah. counter to that. But no, it's, it's, it's just, uh, you know, you need to have that soft side because you see kids stressed out for whatever reasons and you just got to kind of like cut them some slack, but not, 
and it, it, it's an interesting balance because you can't be sort of like let it generally be known that you're going to be slack and, and that deadlines are kind of you know fluid it's like you know in general I'll, I'll come down like kind of hard and yeah this has to be done like homework and you know uh, but then those kids who really need it I will take that you know that soft touch and and uh, sort of mellow sort of thing and I and I feel you know maybe it's kind of an air superiority but I find that people who've had kids sort of are better teachers than people who haven't because people who haven't had kids just don't get it they really don't get it and I hear that adversarial tone that I had before I had kids coming from them you know that they feel that the, 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 the parents are to blame for everything and it's like it's not that simple and uh, do you think it's like once you've had like let's say somebody thought like a parent that's not the same thing no, it's, it's like really you have to like have yeah. gone through the experience. Yeah, because I thought I could empathize until I had right. it. And then you realize, you know, that that thing that yeah. you created is like your whole world. And it's really interesting because like, you know, you, you fall in love with your child when they're a baby and you and that stays with you. And so you're protective. And so I totally understand when the parents get, you know, even when I get those adversarial parents, you know, I know where they're coming from. And I can usually diffuse them. Because of the fact that I know, yeah, that's your kid, and like you do not want to hear that this kid is not doing well for whatever reason, and so you just have to let them know that you're there for them and that you're going to help them out, and it's it's okay. And we got like the special deal, you know, with your son or your daughter that they get an extra amount of time, and that you know, yeah. and uh, and that seems to help most of the time. You want to talk about homework? <laughs> we talk about homework. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Um, well, how about you guys? Like. How much homework did you get, let's say, in elementary school? So I was a bad student. I, uh, I don't think I started doing homework, really. I started doing homework until Sasha. But was uh, it mandatory? Yeah. Did you get oh, it was absolutely mandatory. mandatory. Yeah, you had, oh, well, no. Uh, not necessarily in the sense that uh, um, I was really good at bullshitting. So I got by by doing the minimum. And I wasn't punished for just doing the minimum, which, in a sense, you know, came back to bite me. So it took me a few years to really figure out how did it bite you? Well, I had to start doing homework for real and there were real consequences and it, you know, like Seja, I you know, I was used to in high school I, I had ADHD when I was a kid, I was a little bit of a troublemaker, so teachers were probably kind of always on top of me. Um, and I would just be like, okay, whatever, you know, I'll, I'll get up from like the skin of my neck. But when I got to Seja, uh, and this is really where I started to, you know, my mom would always tell me, get to know your professors, get to know your professors, and I would do it just because I had to, I had no choice, I was seeing them all the time. Once I got to Seja, I could do whatever I want, and it wasn't that structured. And I started to, all of these things that my mom would tell me just keep coming back, and just like, okay, now I understand why it makes sense. That makes sense, and, right. right. and so even though I didn't do my homework, the fact that, maybe even the fact that I didn't do my homework and that came back to bite me and kind of forced me into realizing it, um, you know, in the same sense that, like, I have friends now who were just always very studious, and they're in university, and, you know, their biggest worries is not doing the studying, but, like, understanding what they're studying. So they got the whole study tactics down pat, which is, like, something that's, even to today sometimes, I mean, it's, I still struggle with. Um, so I, I'm not opposed to homework. I think maybe there's just a, yeah, I don't know, I don't know how to address it, yeah, per se. Yeah. Well, I think in my sort of, childhood experience, there was a lot of repetition with regards to myself in terms of you go through the natural ebb and flow of your day, start at 8.30, end at 3.45. But what I mean by repetition is that after each school day, I'll go to tutoring for two hours. 
Then after tutoring, I would go to basketball practice or any sort of recreational activity. So there was always this embedded work ethic that was tied to me. And I sort of fell in love with the process and I started to um, sort of fall in love with details and sort of just keying in on details and consolidating details. And it sort of served as a catalyst for making my inquisitiveness like perpetual. And I think also my upbringing, you know, having you know, my mother's from the Congo, my father's Jewish, there's a hybridity there. When you're sort of exposed to difference in your everyday life, it sort of opens opportunities for you to learn, but in your domestic environment. And so once that's reinforced, once that's embedded, learning doesn't seem foreign to you. So like I, I always embraced homework and yeah, yeah, it was sort of a, it was a good quality to have. I mean, it, it served me to my advantage for sure. So when Martin and I first met, and I don't know if you can just tell by like looking at us from across the table, like Martin wants to know, it's like everything's prepared, and it's just like, a, you know. And so it was funny because when we first met, I'd always kind of joke that like he he had like theory down pat very well. He's it was all the theories there. You can you can see the wheels constantly turning. Um, and I, I I think my biggest problem in high school is that I just I always loved woodshop. And I did so well in woodshop, and I loved to work. I always had a, I had a job since I was fourteen. It was the studying part that I guess I never was into, and that's what was funny when we met. And this is years ago that we met uh, back back in Sejab. That that the, the 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 stark difference between the two of us is really, I think, in a way, what brought us together. Yeah. Was our inquisitiveness, whether it was on theory or just like life in general, that was always my thing. I was always so interested in life and people, and, um, and that was my education in a sense, which you know I really related to what you were saying earlier on, is that. I used to study cinema and film, so I love movies. And then I got to university and I went into liberal arts, and, uh, and now I'm doing school, community, and public affairs. So I'm fully in reading. And thank, you know, thankfully, I like to read, but it's a completely different world than what I was used to before. And we were both in the same program. That it was, you know, you're kind of analyzing the real world in, in a sense, or from maybe a, you know, the, from a step back, but still the, the real world. Homework for me though, it's like, I call it hidden homework. It's like, I give them the time it would take to do the work in class, but then once I've handed out the laptops, it's like, okay, so I'll you know, meander around every once in a while and kind of try to get them back on track, but I'm not cracking the whip or anything. I just remind them that if they don't do it now, it becomes homework. So I'm yeah, just saying you homework. I'm just saying, if you don't finish this in class, and, so, and then I realized oh, also like some kids are just faster than others you know some of them maybe have worked the whole time the whole period but they didn't how long are periods? ours are 50 50 minutes but it's interesting you say that because you know you prolong a certain task it becomes a chore mm -hmm. and I was wondering if because that sentiment is sort of ingrained in the individuals that occupy the space of you know going to elementary school or high school if that is what's feeding this sort of rise of anti-intellectualism. Because intellectuals, I mean, I'm gonna read a quote from Neil deGrasse Tyson. He was on Bill Maher a couple of weeks ago. And he was asked a question on this rise of anti-intellectualism, particularly in the United States. And Neil deGrasse Tyson says, quote, 
I blame some of that on the attitude so many intellectuals had towards those who were not as smart as they were. We have a long history of smart people discounting the views, opinions, and feelings of those who are not as well educated, and that can really piss off an entire demographic. So whenever you're sort of, you know, you encounter that situation where there might be, you know, you can see there's a certain distinction within your classroom, whoever you're addressing, how do you go about the whole process of... Can I jump on this? Sure. Okay. So I'm going to like, I'm going to connect the homework thing with what you're saying at the same time. Okay. So I don't know if this is what you mean by anti-intellectualism, anti but basically for me, um, people who let's say um, have never been teachers and don't know what it's like in the classroom, but you know, they've studied at school, you know, about education. Sometimes they feel, I feel, that they know more than the actual teachers when they're not there in the trenches. Now regarding homework, and connect that to homework, it's been proven through research that homework at the elementary school level actually does not lead to better performance. Um, in high school, it starts to make an impact. But at the elementary school level, it doesn't. However, on the, in the practical sense, let's say a child never does homework at the elementary school level because of the research, right? So the teacher says, okay, well, you're not doing homework since it does not do anyways. Um, and the teacher really believes in this. Well, what happens when they go to high school and all of a sudden they have to do homework? So isn't it that there has to be a mix of both, right? So you do have to prepare them to some extent. And that's why I actually apply what you apply. If you don't finish it in class, it's for homework. And that, to me, is a good way to just consolidate the learning and to make sure that you know what you need to know for the following lesson because it's based on the previous lesson. It's all about building blocks. And if you don't understand that concept, then you will your tower is going to fall because you don't have that foundation. But, I mean, you said it doesn't have an effect like homework like during like the elementary school. According school. to research. Yeah, but, but in terms of consolidating habits. Well, so I'll, I'll jump in there in the sense that I think one of the biggest the thing about homework, at least, is that it's a specific task, right? So you're telling me you have to do this or you'll have to do it at home. And I think that what, when, when I was in stage, what I realized is it wasn't necessarily the specific task that was the problem. It was the preparation, right? So the, that you have an assignment in three or four weeks from now and you have to prepare for that assignment. So you have to take that three or four weeks to prepare, not a week or two days before the assignment. So I think, you know, where, where the disconnect happens, at least, and what I've noticed is not the, doing the homework, but what the homework is actually trying to teach, right? The habit that it's trying to teach. Yeah, um, yeah the hidden curriculum is, yeah. is, is self-discipline. But Kenny, to your point, Kenny, um, I'll do some fact-checking. Somebody much smarter than me said, the problem, the anti-intellectualism, and the anti-science uh, rhetoric that we're hearing uh, can be based on we, we got into uh, media so unfortunately uh, th this podcast actually ended up getting cut off we're uh, at, the, at that time at least when we were recording this we were still in the process of learning how Anchor works I think it records only 60 minutes in, in each segment so uh yeah, we had hit that marker and it was cut off. Um, I, I'm Martin. Do you want to like maybe recap what what was missed in the last bit? 
Well, essentially, I brought up the point that um, throughout the media, there's been a lot of discussion and discourse about how there's this feeling of, of anti-intellectualism that's spreading throughout America and how certain blue-collar populations and demographics don't feel as if they can play the intellectual type of game, but when it comes to making a means of living, that sort of um, conduct is something that feels that that, that that demographic feels that they could sort of play. So that's where we ended off, and Pierre was giving me a reason for why that sort of mentality has been brewing in the United States.